Father, what I just shared is and continues to be my prayer for this message that uh, even if there's pain, oh Lord, ultimately there would be healing and hope. Um, I pray, Father, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds because what you tell us about marriage and what you tell us about singlehood, we're probably not going to hear from Oprah or Dr. Phil. Um, in fact, what you say is ridiculed and mocked and caricaturized and all the rest, and yet your word stands true. And uh, philosophies come and go, cultures come and go, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And we know that lives that are built on the word of God, um, marriages that are built on the word of God, may encounter storms and the shutters may get battered and it might need a new paint job and all the rest, but at the end it's standing because it is built on the Word of God. So would our lives as singles and married be built on the Word of God? Would you speak to us about what faithfulness and contentment in those areas looks like? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Talking to Ryan a few minutes ago, and he said, uh, wow, that's a tough chapter to preach through. And uh, it is. Matter of fact, when I began preparing for the message in earnest last Sunday afternoon, which I typically start diving into the Word for the next week, I just like the time to marinate ahead of time, I wrote uh, in my notes at the top of a yellow uh, notepad, fool's errand, exclamation point, circle. Like, there ain't no way I can begin to preach every one of these verses in one message, and there's no way I can even begin to touch on all the topics that Paul talks about when it comes to marriage and calling and singlehood. It's a fool's errand. But as I was chewing and brewing and marinating on these verses, two words emerged from the text that I think crystallize what our approach to marriage and singlehood should be. Now, these two words are not found explicitly in the text, but the concepts behind the words are. You're going to find faithfulness and contentment in marriage. That is how we are to approach those things. It's important also to note the context of 1 Corinthians 7. If you look at verse 26, Paul writes, um, I think... Verse 26, that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, it's always good when you study the Bible to get the context, right? Like, what, what was the immediate specific context? It says there was a distress. We're not really sure what that is. It could be, in fact, a, a pretty significant famine that was hitting the early church. Um, there's some biblical and, and uh, historical indications that may be the case. You may have a footnote that says it could be translated impending distress. And some say if that's the case, it's referring to the coming terrible persecution under a nasty man named Nero who did all sorts of barbaric things to Christians. Paul, in fact, within years of writing this, will be in prison. A few years later, he will die by being beheaded, a nice kind of execution. Now, I'm pointing out the immediate context because some people um, fail to, to understand the immediate context, and they derive then from what Paul says in that context 
uh, the idea that Paul has a very low view of marriage and that he basically thinks the only reason you should ever get married is if you just have to have physical intimacy. Now, he's talking about a specific context. Nonetheless, there are some timely overarching applications, right? And the fact of the matter is, Paul had the farthest thing from a low view of marriage. For instance, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his wife and the two will cleave to each other and become one. He has a high view of marriage. In fact, Paul is the one who writes Ephesians 5 that gives us the glorious ultimate gospel depicting purpose of marriage, right? And in fact, according to verse 7, Paul says both marriage and singlehood are charismas, which means grace gift. He has a high view of marriage and, and singlehood. These are grace gifts for those who have the gift. How would you know what kind of gift you have? Really easy answer. If you're married, you have the charisma of marriage. And if you're single, you have the charisma, the grace gift of singlehood until if God decides to move your life otherwise. In other words, we all have charisma. We're all charismatics in this room in that sense right here. So with that kind of as the introduction and backdrop, we're just going to dive right in. Again, we're not going to hit every verse, but we're going to begin, as you can read in your outline, by looking at faithfulness in marriage. And you'll see there's three concepts. This isn't all-inclusive. There's other parts of the Bible would tell us more, but we're just looking at this passage right here. And the first thing that we would find, if faithfulness in marriage, what does it look like? It means you sleep together. And yes, I mean that euphemistically, okay? You get the point, right? Look at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul is signaling a shift that he's no longer responding to the oral report he got from Chloe's people. Uh, now he is responding to a written letter that somebody uh, sent them that he was very concerned about. And it seems this is what was going on. There were Christians in the church at Corinth who were overreacting the old pendulum effect to the deviant sexual ethos of the culture at Corinth at large that was invading the church as we talked about last week. In other words, they were not just fleeing sexual immorality at large, a good thing. Chapter 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. They were also fleeing sexual intimacy, some of them, in marriage. Not a good thing. And it was under a false view that um, physical relations of any kind was inherently sinful. You will find that even in, a, in, in, in Roman Catholicism, I, I don't mean to throw any stones, but in religions that, that hold on to that, they, they, they have this dichotomy between those who are, are pure clergy, forbidden from marrying, which, by the way, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, watch out for those who forbid of marrying, and also seen in how they, they, they talk about intimacy and marriage. That's a whole other topic, but apparently that was going on there. They were saying, listen, if you really want to be holy, even though you're married, you shouldn't sleep together. And that's why you read that latter part of verse 1 of chapter 7 in quotes. He's quoting something that somebody was saying. It is good 
for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. So that's what Paul's addressing. So if you think Paul talks a lot about sexual intimacy, he doesn't have a fixation. He doesn't have an obsession. He's simply responding pastorally to air that was coming at the church, right? That's it. And what he says is very clear. Verse 2, this is what he says. Latter part of verse 2, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And then the, uh, the initial part of verse 5, do not deprive one another. Now, is that pretty clear? Fairly clear? How many says it's fairly clear? How many says that's crystal clear? Crystal clear. I don't need to expand on that too much, I don't think. But I want to note a few things. First of all, I want to note the symmetry. If I'm symmetry, symmetry, am I saying that right? Symmetry. Thank you. There's certain words that I cannot pronounce. Um, symmetry, right? So it's two-way. In other words, this isn't pro-man, right? Neither is it pro-woman. It's pro-marriage. It's pro-faithfulness in marriage. Do you know how he talks to the wife and he talks to the husband, right? So that's important to note, number one. Number two, second, this passage is not to be abused by using to manipulate your spouse. There needs to be great sensitivity about these matters, right? Now, let's be honest, fellas. We need to remember that. There does need to be great sensitivity and healthy, candid communication about these matters because life is full of all kinds of things, right? Sickness and cycles and trials and body changes and the state of your relationship in the moment and background issues and a whole host of other things. In fact, the word conjugal, as I read it, doesn't carry the weight of, you better give it up to me. It doesn't carry the weight of being demanding, yet rather the, the, the freight, if you will, and the weight behind this word is how can I serve my spouse in all things, even sexually? The third thing I would say, though, is, well, this passage is here for a reason, right? Maybe the conversation would go like this. If, you know, honey, I, I'd just like to spend some time with you. I'm not feeling so great. Um, I'm not in that frame of mind. You know what? I, I want to serve you. And then the person responds, oh, no, 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 that's fine. We don't need to. And, and not change your warmth level. Okay? Um, you need to talk about ways you can meet each other's needs. I'll just leave it at that, okay? But it's there for a reason. Now, why is, why is sleeping together good? Well, according to Song of Solomon, it's physically pleasurable, which is a gift from the Lord. Second of all, according to this text, it is spiritually strengthening. Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer 
but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, there's a, there's a spiritually strengthening purpose to, to, that, to that intimacy. But, but I have asterisk here, okay? Um, the spouse not having intimacy with another spouse, with another spouse, with their own spouse, let's be clear on that. Um, a spouse not having intimacy with their spouse is never then a valid excuse or valid reason at all, right, for then that spouse to find um, unbiblical outlets for their sexual desires. Does that make, does that make sense? I want to be really, really clear on that. That said, Paul's just being honest, right? You help your spouse with that battle when you are with them sexually. But in all seasons, in season, when you're spending that time together, and out of season, when you're maybe not so much, it is never a reason to do anything but fight the fight and always say no <laughs> to unbiblical outlets for your sexual desire. So he says sleep together. Pretty clear, right? You don't need no Greek for that. Now the second thing he's going to tell us faithfulness in marriage looks like, and it is so quiet right now, is stay together. Look at verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge. Not I, by the, but the Lord. What, what he is saying is the Lord specifically addressed this, and so I'm just repeating that. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So here, scenario one, he's addressing a scenario where you have two believers that are married. And what's he saying about divorce? It can't happen. He says, bottom line, don't divorce. Now, the only biblical reasons for divorce would be adultery, abandonment, and abuse. And there are various scriptural arguments for that, which I will not take the time to unpack. But I will say this. According to this verse, all other, um, all other divorces are forbidden by God. And therefore, all other remarriages are forbidden by God. So if somebody gets divorced and it's not for adultery, abandonment, or abuse, they cannot get remarried except to their former spouse, according to this, to this passage. Now, I do want to add this. Um, I have heard, I have sadly heard, not firsthand, but through other pastors, of cases where Christians knew this, that they couldn't get remarried if they were divorced for a reason other than those three A's. And so they acted like such a jerk over time that their spouse finally said, I had enough, and they left. And they would, then, they would then be able to say, well, I was abandoned by my spouse, so now I can get remarried. And that is just absolutely from the pits of hell, right? That's wicked. But moving back to this truth of staying together or moving farther into it, you are going to quickly learn you did not marry Mr. Perfect. You did not, I know, right? It's crazy. Uh, you, you did not marry Mrs. Perfect. Nor did you marry Mr. Mrs. Make Me Feel Great All the Time. That's actually not in their job description. Though we like to think it is. And if you have a shred, singular tense, of self-awareness, 
Well, you'll learn that you are the farthest thing from Mr. or Mrs. Perfect. And though Christians aren't supposed to talk like this, and sadly most don't until they've already made the decision to divorce, you may have a time when you think, I want out. I made a mistake. I married the wrong man. I married the wrong woman. What did I do? On and on and on and on. I'm going to come back to this under the contentment part, but I just want to register this point with, with force. Divorce is not an option according to this text. Faithfulness means you stay together. And I'm simply echoing, Paul is simply echoing Jesus' words, what, what God has joined together, let no man divide asunder, right? Think about your wedding vows until you no longer are doing it for me. Right? Until death do us part. That's what the scripture says, right? Or that's what, that, that's what the traditional wedding vows say, rooted in the truth of scripture. Maybe good on occasion to, to repeat those traditional wedding vows, whether you use them or not. Look at verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Again, Christians are supposed to marry Christians. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. Now we can talk about the original context there. I'll just let that stand the way it is. But you get God's heart on this, right? Notable. Now verses 12 through 16 um, tackle another. Uh, let me add this. This was a late addition to my sermon. Um, we're going to talk about contentment. But you've got to have forgiveness in your marriage. We all are so unforgiving all the, so often, right? So easy. But you don't forgive. You're going to grow a cancer of bitterness and resentment that will take you down. And it will take your relationship down. So you and I need to again and again, all the way home, learn the art or really obey the command of forgiveness, of giving forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. Now, verses 12 through 16, a little different scenario. It addresses a couple, what we would call a mixed marriage. One person is a believer and the other person's not. Look how Paul puts it. To the rest, I say, not the Lord. Now, let me stop there. People say, well, what's that about? All Paul is saying is that Christ didn't explicitly address the mixed marriage thing, so he is going to then make an application upon the foundation of what Jesus said, that divorce ain't, ain't what, I, what I planned for you, um, and what he says is authoritative. He says that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Um, apparently what was happening in this church is there were people saying, listen, the Lord's coming back soon. You want everything about your life to be really holy. If you're married to an unbeliever, that person isn't holy, so yeah, you need to get divorced. And they, they were teaching that. And actually, there's some cults that do teach that even today. Now, we don't know how people might have gotten into that scenario. Maybe they were both non-Christians and one became a Christian. Or it could be that 
one person in, in disobedience to what the scripture says as a Christian, married a non-Christian, but whatever the case may be, you're in that marriage and God wants you to stay in that marriage. And so what does he say? He says, no, you stay together. Oh, but my marriage isn't holy, they were saying. And what does he say here? We don't have time to read all the verses. He says, no, you actually make your unbelieving wife holy. You make your unbelieving husband holy. You make your unbelieving kids holy. It doesn't mean they're automatically Christians. He's not saying that. The word holy simply means set apart, right? And when, when, when there's a non-Christian married to a Christian, and that Christian is really seeking to walk with the Lord, their spouse is set apart. They have exposure to the gospel, right? Their kids, they're set apart. They have exposure to the gospel. If your unbelieving spouse departs, it says you're not enslaved. Uh, I mean, you, you can't keep something going that they don't want to go, keep going. But your heart must be, I want it to go as long as it can. I want to keep my vows to the best of my ability. So you sleep together, you stay together, and then third of all, you serve together. In verses 32 through 35, Paul is making the more primary point uh, that one of the advantages of singlehood is you don't have to worry about pleasing your spouse. Look at the way he puts it in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. Unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, he is saying that one of the advantages, to repeat myself, of being single is that you don't have to be anxious or have concerns or care about a spouse. You don't have one. And the idea of, of, of is, is pleasing them, caring for them, providing for them, serving them. And by the way, Paul expects us to do that who are married, right? He's not saying that a bad thing. You actually have a responsibility to serve and to seek to please and to provide for and care for your spouse in the roles that God has assigned us. He expects couples to do that. And here's where I'm making then the point serve together. Serving together then clearly begins with serving each other. Husband and wives must serve each other. To have and to hold and to cherish, again, the traditional wedding vows. It's a commitment. But it is easy. It is easy, I can tell you, as responsibilities grow and life becomes more complicated and busy to stop doing that. Certainly, nearly as intentionally as you did when you were first married. But paradoxically, the funny thing is, and the scripture tells us this, as you intentionally serve, then that love that seems to be flagging can once again grow. As you serve, love can grow. And it might be then good to ask the question to yourself, in the quiet of your own heart, how am I doing in serving my spouse? Might be a good weekly question to put in your calendar or your notebook. How am I doing? Because we, we tend to, by default, we think, well, how's my spouse serving me, right? But really, we need to ask the question, how am I serving my spouse? And of course, that does include if the Lord blesses you with a child or with children, serving your kids. And you know what? The scripture sketches out, actually, the primary roles for men and women. And yes, while there's tons of overlap, 
There are distinctions, my friends, that society wants to erase. Such as the male is the primary provider and protector. And the woman is the primary nurturer. They're not exclusive. There's, oh, there's overlap. But those are the distinctions the scripture gives. And I think that it would be helpful for us, the church, to talk a little bit more about that. I don't have that much time to do that. But can I read you a few verses that make the point I just asserted? For instance, in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, Paul writes to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God be not reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And the text goes on. Some pretty countercultural stuff there, right? Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 5.8. Men, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Several verses from Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And then verse 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Genesis 2.24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and, boom, hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And we'll expand upon that in January when we come to 1 Corinthians 11. But those are some countercultural verses, right? Would you agree? But I just read the word of God to you on that. Ultimately, it's all about serving the Lord together. Eve was a helper corresponding to Adam. That's the Hebrew right there, corresponding. So it's not, not, not completing, 
you know, somebody says, he completes me or she completes me. I, I get the sentiment, but no, 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 you're, you're complete in Christ. You're complete in Christ. There is a complementing thing go, that goes on that helps you be better together and serving the Lord. And I might want to add this. The way spouse, you serve your spouse, one of the ways. And the way spouse, you serve your kids is by helping them be faithful to the body of Christ. Think about it. If you are supposed to be a picture, your marriage, Ephesians 5, of the relationship between Christ and the church, then don't you think a baseline of that would be being faithful to the church yourself? Where, by the way, you'll constantly, constantly and consistently be reminded of truths such as you're hearing today that can help you stay the course. And I have seen, I have seen this, the lack of faithfulness to one's bride or a lack of faithfulness to one's groom often begin or at least begin to show itself in a lack of faithfulness to Christ, the bride of Christ and the groom himself. Mark it down. That's often how it goes down. So faithfulness and marriage, sleep together, stay together, serve together, starting with serving one another. Now, faithfulness and singlehood. I'm going to summarize it in two ways. First of all, there would be celibacy. Celibacy. This is what this chapter is about, celibacy and singlehood. But I call your attention back to last week's text. Verses 18 through 20 of chapter 6, where he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, can celibacy, you know, it is real talk, can celibacy be a struggle? Can that be a struggle? I, I, came, I came from a, a non-Christian background and a, a different ethos, okay, than, than what I found in Scripture. What I read in Scripture, rather, was, was quite shocking to me when I, when I became like, oh, the Lord really wants us just to, you know, to, you know. It can be a struggle. And what makes it more of a struggle is um, we live in a culture where celibacy is seen as outdated and mocked. I mean, there is a reason uh, as the book, um, The Rise and Fall of, of the Modern Mind, uh, it's a great book. I don't even have the title straight. But he talks about, for instance, how you have a comedy called you know, 40-year-old virgin, 40-year-old virgin, right? Like, ha-ha, that's obviously a comedy, right? Like, mocked, outdated, narrow-minded, stingy, puritanish, right? Oh, and by the way, and I skipped this when I talked about married people sleeping together. I've got three articles. I don't have the time to read it. But, you know, you, what do you, when you think of sexuality and the Puritans, what do you think about? Like, you know, just tell me. Break the ice here for us, would you? What's that? Burlap. That says it all. Burlap, right? Do you know, and that, that, that's a misnomer, the Puritans, you can look up, be very careful, 
Googling anything have to do with sex, but if you Google sex, <laughs> the sacredness of sex in the Puritans, you will read article after article. Actually, they had a very, they were very puritanical against immorality, but they were very passionate about sexual intimacy and marriage. I mean, you can read their poems that were public things. I mean, these ain't 18-year-olds writing these poems. These are 40-year-olds. They had a very passionate view, and they believed that it was a sacrament. Um, because actually, uh, uh, the reason I missed it, I'm sorry I'm going all around this touchy sermon, um, but I said that purity is physically pleasurable, spiritually strengthening, but it's also relationally, relationally deepening. That was their thing, that there was actually a grace that came where they pictured and experienced more of the unity they have in Christ between each other. But I totally, totally sidestepped that, so let me get back to where I was at. We can struggle as singles with celibacy. It's mocked, right? It's not a popular position. And what's more is we actually don't want to be celibate a lot. We get attracted to somebody. We're dating somebody. And, and I just want to say celibacy, according to God, is faithfulness. But I also want to say this. If you have not always been celibate, that is, you're not a virgin, please do not fall into the virgin, non-virgin dichotomy. You know what I'm talking about? Like we just make such a virgin, non-virgin. And, and, and yes, there ain't no in-between. Like you either are or aren't. I, I get that. But your status as a virgin or a non-virgin is in your identity. It's in Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing you as you walk in the light. And I think sometimes Christians hyper-exalt this virgin, non-virgin uh, dichotomy. For instance, sometimes in Christian circles, somebody will get married. And the wedding will come. And she's beautiful and dressed in white. And somebody might murmur, can't believe she's dressed in white. She's got quite a past. And I think that when that comes, if somebody's still walking that lifestyle, of course that needs to be addressed. We're not talking about that. But I think, first of all, that's forgetting the gospel. Because what God has declared clean, let no man call unclean. And I think there's a bit of sexism that comes out with that, frankly. I've never heard that against a groom. And it does take two to tangle, right? And I also want to add this. The fact that you may have messed up in the past, man or woman, is not a reason to keep messing up, right? I mean, nobody would say, well, I drank poison in the past. I might as well just keep on drinking poison. That's what the devil wants to do with you with sexuality, though. Devil won't say, oh, you, you know, you're, you're, you're damaged goods or whatever. And Christ says, no, you're redeemed goods. Walk in that truth. The blood of Jesus Christ does cleanse. And so whatever your sexual past, you can walk in faithfulness now because that's what celibacy is. In the name of the Lord. And we often hear, hey, marriage really displays the gospel. Indeed, it does. Ephesians 5. But singlehood also gloriously displays the gospel. You say, how? Colossians chapter 2, you are complete in Christ. And you get to show he's not only sufficient for my sins, 
he's sufficient for my satisfaction. And all of us forget that, which we'll come back to very briefly when we talk about contentment. So what does faithfulness in singlehood look like? Well, it looks like, number one, celibacy. And number two, it looks like service. I'd actually add a word, enhanced service. Paul is going to make it clear in verses 28-ish down through 35 that one of the clear advantages of singlehood is enhanced service for two reasons which kind of overlap. Verse 28, latter part of the verse, he says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Again, he's talking about a specific context, but there's overarching principles, right? Um, he doesn't say, single, you will have no troubles. He's not saying that. Your, your car will still not start. You'll still get sick. You'll still have struggles, right? You'll still have issues in life. He's not saying you will have no trouble. Life is still going to come at you. But simple math says this, that when you're married and you have kids, where there's more people who can have troubles that you're responsible for, right? That's basically what he's saying. Married people just, you know, we, we, there's, there's more responsibilities. That's true, right? People will have stuff come up and your husband will, your wife will, your kids, if you have kids, will. They will experience more. This is simple math. And it will take time and energy and money and strength and focus and care and concern as it should. You committed to that. One of the ways we serve each other. But singles just don't have that scope of responsibility, right? And then this, verses 32 through 34, I want you to be free from anxieties. Five times in this passage, in this paragraph, he uses the word anxieties. It's kind of an overlap, less trouble, less anxieties. Anxieties here isn't so much the negative connotation, however, that we think of. It's more like cares and, 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 and concerns. And again, married people are supposed to have cares and concerns for their spouse, for their children. And that's kind of the point. Singles don't have to because they don't have a spouse or perhaps children. And therefore, a single person, verse 32, can be anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Verse 34, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. And, and, and the ultimate point is this, that he might, end of verse 35, secure your undivided attention to the Lord. See, faithfulness in singlehood is leveraging your less troubles. You still have troubles. And less anxieties, you still have anxieties. But the lessness of that, you leverage for serving the king. Now, that, that's not going to mean anything to, to, to a single who doesn't give a rip about Christ and his kingdom, but that's valuable and precious for those whom that is a value. Now, singles, just as I spoke quite pointedly to married people about faithfulness to the body of Christ, I want to ask you, is that a priority for you? Or does your singleness, your freedom, get in the way of faithfulness to the bride of Christ? Now, whatever your marital status, and we've got to close this, 
we need to be content. I think that's one of the ideas that pervades verses 17 through 24. It begins with these words. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him into which God has called him. Now, contentment is super easy, right? This comes naturally. Of course it doesn't. And that's why I said we got to cultivate contentment. Because we are, we're by nature in our fallenness, uncontent, non-content, whatever. And then we're blitzed with a world that always says more, 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 better, 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 you know, all that, right? In the marketing world and all that. And we have a flesh that says, yeah, that's right, I deserve more, you know? So we have to cultivate contentment. Because this is, this is where it can hit in these areas. If only I was married, then I would be happy. If only I wasn't married, then I would be happy. If only I was married to somebody else, I would be happy. And just about everyone at some time has been afflicted by some form of these less than stellar thoughts. And you got to fight back in those times by remembering that you are where you are because of God's sovereignty, and he, and he is benevolent in his sovereignty. He is good in his sovereignty. He is kind in his sovereignty. And, and, and sovereignty is all over that verse because you have the word, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned. Assigned. He's sovereign to him into which God has called him. And he's pretty strong about this. Then he says, this is my rule in all the churches. Now, does that mean you're to be passive? Does that mean you should be passive? Because he assigned it to you, just be passive. No. As Pastor Charles read it, if, 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 if somebody's a bond servant and you can find your freedom, man, maybe take your freedom. Like, don't be passive. And I would add by extension, if you're single and you desire to be married, then take that as from the Lord. Do it the right way and don't put your head in the sand like an ostrich and take some steps. And do it in the company of other believers who can watch your blind spot. And if you want your marriage to improve, well, just don't stick your head in the sand. Take some steps. Don't be passive. In other words, he's not prescribing passivity, but what he is commending is faithfulness. And faithfulness is inseparably connected to contentment. Faithfulness, in other words, and I'm closing, and we're going to go to the Lord's Supper. Faithfulness is rooted in contentment. Listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 4. For I have learned, he says, so it, he had to cultivate contentment, right? It didn't come naturally. I have learned, he says, in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I have, here's the word again, learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And that's followed by the most hijacked verse of all. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is not a verse that says you can hit as many home runs as you want and score as many touchdowns as you want. There's something called context. 
And what that verse is saying is this. The all things you can do is that you can find contentment in all circumstances. Not contentment in the circumstances themselves. I don't think Paul said, I love being brought low. I don't think that was his thing, you know. I love being hungry. I love that, you know, that gnawing. No, not that. It's contentment not in the circumstances, but in spite of the circumstances or in the midst of the circumstances because your contentment is rooted in Christ. You may not always be content the season of your marriage or the state of being single or some other calling. But you can be content in Christ. And that contentment in those more difficult seasons of all of the above can keep you from going off the rails and keep you being faithful. In other words, I would boil it all down to this. Key or critical to faithfulness is contentment. And critical or key to contentment is growing in knowing Christ. Paul says in that book of Philippians chapter 4 that I might know him. Well, I thought you already knew him, dude. You're preaching about him really well. No, that I might know him. I have greater intimacy. And not just the, the great stuff, that I might know him and the power of, the, of his resurrection, he says, and also this, the fellowship 